Today we'll be discussing the career of legendary actor and comedian Robin Williams, and we'll be discussing dementia with Lewy bodies. This is Doctor versus Comedian. Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the career of the legendary comedian and actor, Robin Williams. Now, Robin suffered from dementia with Lewy bodies, and in the second half of the show, we'll be discussing this neurologic disorder. Okay, Ali, why don't we get started with this episode? You know, it's funny, when I was looking over this topic, Robin Williams, and then of course, dementia with Lewy bodies, which he suffered from, I'm like, this is going to be a... A lighthearted, fun episode, Robin Williams, his career, and obviously he passed away several years ago, so that is sad. But, you know, there's a melancholy to his life and his story that, I don't know, I I felt very sad kind of after doing the research for this. Yeah, I guess I knew a little bit more about Robin Williams than you did, because at no point would I have thought that this would be a wonderful episode from top to bottom. He struggled with drug addiction. He struggled at some level with depression. The way he died was, of course, very sad. And so what we're really getting into here is this HBO documentary. It's called Robin Williams Come Inside My Mind. And there's a few other things as well that are out there about Robin Williams. His Is it called Robin's Wish, Austin? Yeah, Robin's Wish is another follow-up documentary, which was kind of made by his wife, his widow, after he passed away, which centers a lot about this uh, Louis body disease that he had. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then you listened to a podcast too recently. I did listen to a podcast. It's called Knowing Robin Williams. And so, yeah, at, at every level of success and fame, there is definitely, you know, something that balances it out with something sad. So I, I wouldn't have thought this was lighthearted from the beginning. And You know, even the people who knew him best, very, very surprising, a publicist that he worked with was sad. And this is such a comment on Hollywood. You know, a publicist he worked with was very sad when he blew up. One of Robin's friends said to her, isn't this great? Isn't this great for Robin? And she said, don't you understand? They build him up just to break him down. And they didn't mean Robin. They mean that's what they do to stars. And sure enough, people were there ready to pounce on him as soon as his, his star, because a, a star like his could never burn bright throughout. He was just so incredible. But let, let me ask you then, when did you get first exposed to Robin Williams? How did, when does he come on your radar? So I was thinking about this the other day, and I, at first I thought it was with Mork, from Mork and Mindy, because the character Mork first appeared in Happy Days, and he was kind of like a, a dream. Initially, it was written as a dream that uh, Richie Cunningham had. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's almost like Mork and Fonzie battle at the end, and then Fonzie wins, and it was actually just a dream episode, it turned out at the end. I thought that's where I saw him, but interesting, by the way, that episode, I guess in syndication, it was rewritten that, no, Mork really did come, because that's how they were able to have a spinoff of Mork and Mindy afterwards. So I thought it was from Happy Days and Mork and Mindy, but then I thought about it, I'm like, the timing didn't line up, and in fact, I think the first time I was really exposed to him was with Popeye. So I lived in overseas 
overseas, as as you know, Ali went in, in from like eighty to eighty three, and yeah, overseas makes it sound super sexy and exciting. You lived in Saudi yeah, Arabia, yeah, which is so probably the opposite less, of sexy and exciting. But so I did live there, and you know they didn't have satellite TV and stuff like that or cable TV there. So what would happen is there were people who would volunteer on the Canadian compound I, I was at to run the TV service. So they would play videotapes. So they would play movies and people would just often just tape, you know, 12 hours of TV that was on in, in Canada and then just show it over there. So I got to <laughs> be exposed to all these shows and Popeye was one of the movies that had come out in, in 1980. And so they, when it came out on VHS, they would play that. So I've seen that movie. I don't know. 15 or 20 times. And so I don't know if it would hold up now, but I loved it as a kid. I thought it was weird and, and just kind of strange and, and really interesting in terms of, of Pop. I don't know if you remember that movie, like, but he hates spinach at the end. They kind of force feed it to him at the end. And anyway, it's all very unusual, but I, I thought it was great. I don't remember that. I remember thinking about how does this guy keep his eye closed yeah. for the entire yeah. movie? This is like... After a while, that's going to affect your, right? You're at an age where your mother's like, if you make that face, your face will always look like that. So I was like, poor guy's going to lose the ability to open one eye. By the way, do you know, I only realized it now while researching this podcast that Popeye, like that's why he's called Popeye because his eye popped out. Like I, <laughs> I didn't realize that until right now. I didn't realize that until this very second. Anyway, lucky you in Saudi Arabia. Let's just say that. That's great. So that was it for me. I think that's when I first was exposed to him. What about you? I'm going to say my memory of him is first comedy because I would watch these HBO specials when I'd go see my cousin Zucky. So I'm like 14, 15, 16. I'm going to the US. There's this thing called HBO, this magical thing called HBO that I've never heard about. And we'd watch these various specials. And I remember there was this live aid, not a live aid, but something like it was the comedian's live aid. It was Whoopi Goldberg, Billy oh, Crystal, and yeah. Robin Wood. Comic relief, for God's sake, not live aid. I think they described it as live mm -hmm. aid, but done by comics. So that's why I have that in mind. So watching comic relief is a great memory of Robin Williams. And I'm certain that I had seen his comedy prior to that because I was excited to see him. I know I'd seen Billy Crystal on Saturday Night Live. And I'm like, where did I see Robin Williams? I didn't watch that much Mork and Mindy, maybe five, 10 episodes. But yeah, I think it was stand-up first. And it was like just the wildest stuff I had ever seen. And then it was stand-up. And then I think I put together the pieces of the bigger parts of him and acting and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to say I loved him from the second I saw him. It was so wild. You know, it's a little bit like Dennis Miller. It was a type of comedy where you're like, I can't wait to watch this all again to understand more of it. And it's not just understand. With Dennis Miller, it was understand. With Robin Williams, it was catch it. I missed a bunch of stuff. So he has this special live at the Met from the Metropolitan Opera House. Something I would recommend to everybody, watch it with subtitles on. Watch it with subtitles on and you catch everything. But you also catch the audience missing so much stuff. He starts talking about, right? This was a lot of like, and I remember this clearly, him talking about his drug and alcohol dependency and his problem and he's not drinking anymore. And I was like, what? He was an alcoholic? I remember being all horrified for him. But, you know, obviously super positive thing that he's talking about. No longer uh, drinking and no longer doing drugs. But I remember he was talking about the worst thing about alcohol is the blacking out. And again, I know nothing about these things, but he's saying when you don't remember what you did the night before, 
and somebody calls you and, and, and you have to answer the phone, go, I, I did what? I what? I took a dump in your tuba? Oh, oh my God. I, I thought somebody told me that that doesn't fit in the tuba. So it's, he's trying to rhyme fit. Which, anyway, it's like you can't, they laugh at dump at the tuba, then they miss the fit in the tuba, and then they miss something else. And then they, you can hear the laughs come, but when you're watching the subtitles, you see like the barrage of jokes. And there's just people's minds can't retain at the speed that Robin Williams puts things out. And that's even when he was off drugs. I mean, he was clean and he was still so much so coming at you so fast. Well, I love A Night at the Met. That is also one of my core memories of him. I've seen that special many times. Love it. But and let's, I want to get back to maybe to wrap things up in a couple minutes, we can talk about his stand-up influence or influence on stand-up, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But let's go through a couple other things. What we've done on past episodes when we have a celebrity we're talking about, we, we just don't go through their life in chronological order. That's just like reading a Wikipedia page, but we're not going to do that. Let's instead just pick a few interesting facts. We can each pick uh, like two or three and kind of go, go through that. Does that sound okay? That sounds okay. I thought you were asking our listeners. They can't speak back e to we'll you. We'll pause it now, email us <laughs> or DM us, and then, you know, in a couple of weeks, wait. we'll get back. No. So yeah. uh, my first one, which I, I didn't know, I found this out through research and watching some of these documentaries, is that he, you know, was an only child for his parents. His parents were quite affluent, and he had two half-brothers, but each half. So his mother had a child with a different husband. And then his father had a child with a different husband. So all boys, and, wife, and they were probably, all only children. Yeah. It's very interesting hearing his brothers talk because they all are kind of the same, right? They they want to be outgoing, but there's an intrinsic loneliness to them because they're only children. And they can all relate because they were all each only children, but yet had brothers. Meanwhile, the solution to their loneliness lies within each other. They're like, oh my God, we could have yeah, been hanging yeah. out as and I brothers. think there's some regret know, about that. Yeah. You know, like I said, his parents were well off so much so that in the early part of high school, I think at the end of the kind of middle school, he went to a private school in Michigan. It's before he moved to San Francisco. He spent his teenage years and then he, he kind of calls San Francisco home, to, but he lived in Michigan for a bit. And he went to a private school very similar to the one in Dead Poet Society. And mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting because I'm sure he drew on a lot of that when he was doing that performance in, in, as the teacher I don't doubt in, in Dead Poet Society. Yeah. An interesting thing about Robin Williams I, I didn't know was that he was very close to Christopher Reeve. They both studied at Juilliard together. Now, I know Robin Williams went to Juilliard. He's an you know, incredibly trained actor. This information came to me when I was stunned by his acting. People would already know, well, he went to Juilliard, famed acting school. And But I didn't know his connection to Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve was the godfather of Zach Williams, Robin Williams' first son. It's interesting because when you look at these two men, you know, Robin looks like a dirty hippie. No offense to the hippies. He looks like he was trying to be like, you know, this shirtless, like surfer dude. And Christopher Reeve was that very preppy sort of looking, went to a prep school type of thing and, and went, was, you know, came from money throughout wearing his, there's lots of pictures of Christopher Reeve with his, you know, sweater tied around his neck and stuff like this. And, but the fact is, as you just suggested, Robin Williams would know that world very well from having been in it. I think Robin Williams really resisted it and maybe resented it and didn't, didn't enjoy what, what came along with being part of a wealthy society. And I think he really did his best to cut himself off from his father's money in a lot of ways. Obviously, he was at Juilliard, so he was, you know, 
but I, I know that the struggle for him was to not use, you know, stand on his own two feet and not be dependent upon his father. Yeah, I think he got a scholarship, a full ride to Juilliard. I think, oh, he got a I full ride. So. I'm not sure. You're 100% right. Him and Chris right. Freeve got he into an advanced program because they were already a few years into university at that time. But I think they didn't. You know, I, I'm not sure about that, but yeah. So in terms of other things that I found out, and it's it's very interesting, this idea of his cocaine and drug use, which you had alluded to before, Ali, he... When you watch his stand-up on stage, you think, oh, this guy is certainly on cocaine. And he certainly was for a good part of the late <laughs> 70s and early 80s. Towards his time on Mork and Mindy, by the second season, he was heavily into cocaine. And, you know, there were many reasons that led to the downfall of that show. Moving time slots was a big issue, but I don't think his drug use helped a lot with that. And... A couple interesting things. He was with John Belushi the night before John Belushi died. And he was quite shell-shocked the next morning when he found out that John Belushi had died. He went to go visit John Belushi after, like, they, they weren't doing drugs together or anything like that. But when he saw John Belushi, Robin Williams thought, oh, he seems quite a bit out of it or whatever. So there was a bit of concern, but not thinking he was going to pass away that night. So that really, I think, affected Robin Williams so much so that he stopped doing cocaine after that immediately. And as you said, he did have problems with alcoholism later on, but he really was clean for, for many, many years. And one of the interesting things I found is that there's a quote from Eric Idle talking about, and Eric Idle from Monty Python fame, right? I-D-L-E, that's who I'm talking about. Yep. And he said he would hang out with Robin Williams a lot and he'd follow him sometimes from set. He'd do another set at a different comedy club and Robin would use cocaine more and more as the night went on. And Eric Idle was like, he became less funny as the night went on. So people who think that it was the cocaine fueling his comedy was the opposite. And Eric Idle would say, no, in fact, it was a detriment to his comedy. One of the things that I found most interesting from the perspective of somebody who's been in a writing room, you know, I... I knew that Mork was on Happy Days. I watched that episode and then it was Mork and Mindy came out of that, a spinoff out of just this one episode is quite interesting as far as TV history goes. But what I didn't know is that the reason Mork appeared in Happy Days at all is because Gary Marshall, who created Happy Days, and I think he was show running it, producing it, his son, Scott, little Scotty, seven or eight years old, had just seen Star Wars recently. And Gary's like, how come you don't watch Happy Days anymore? And, and Scotty goes, because there's no spacemen in Happy Days. And Gary walks into the writing room, you know, the next day in Happy Days and goes, we got to put a spaceman in Happy Days. Scotty won't watch. And I just know from the perspective of being in writing rooms, having a producer or director or somebody walk in and assert some nonsensical, irrelevant thing like this is so frustrating for writers. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to write this show for like all of America, pretty wide audience. And you have to worry about the producer's idiot seven-year-old son. Like, who cares that we don't have Spaceman? Who cares that a seven-year-old's not watching our show? I'm sure that was a real dark moment in the writing room. And yet, Gary Marshall would have no regrets about that whatsoever because it created this, this fantastic series. Although, on Mork and Mindy, because of the drugs and because of who Robin was, there were a lot of late nights and long days on set. And I'm sure there were days where Gary Marshall was like, why the hell did I ever do if this? If you guys can find the outtakes from Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy, they are mm. hilarious because the outtakes are him in, you know, dressed up in character with Pam Dauber as Mindy. 
and he's but he'll be swearing and stuff like that and people are breaking all the time and you could just imagine being in the audience for something like that it would have been hilarious yeah. oh so so envious of that i love that uh watching some of those clips so another thing that i didn't know now let's fast forward a bit another piece of trivia is has to do with aladdin so i guess what happened with aladdin is everybody knows he was the voice of the genie but mm-hmm. he was kind of in negotiations with uh, Disney for the role. And I guess he agreed to get what's called SAG scale pay. Ali, is that, that's what actors get. That's like the base pay, I guess. In the U S the SAG scale scale is SAG is the union, the screen actors guild scale means you're getting the bare minimum that the union has negotiated for all actors. So my understanding was he was paid something like $75,000 where his normal asking fee would have been $8 million. But he yeah. made a special deal on this, and I think it's because he had the other movie, Toys, that was coming out, and he thought there may be a conflict doing a Disney movie and this movie called Toys. Not Toy Story, but Toys. And yeah. he basically said that he would do it, but he did not want the genie on any advertising or marketing. That was his rule, because he was yeah. not getting paid in a way that would be commensurate to that. Of course, we all know what happened. The genie was a huge character and appeared on all things and Happy Meals and things like that. And he got super upset and there was a big conflict with Disney for years. So much so that he refused to do the sequel, the direct-to-video sequel, even though he was offered that. And they tried to apologize, Disney did, by sending him a $1 million Picasso painting at the time. Robbie Williams is so highfalutin, apparently, it didn't fit in with the decor of his house. So he was not impressed by that apology, though most people would be happy to get that. So, But I guess he could have made way more money than he could have bought himself eight Picassos with what he could have made on it. And then eventually, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of Disney, left, and Joe Roth took over, and Joe Roth did apologize publicly to Robin Williams, and they made up, and he did do the second sequel, which was Aladdin and the King of Thieves. So anyway, some interesting mm-hmm. info about his feud with Disney. And real like low moment for Disney, like really garbage behavior. I mean, he saved you over $7 million and he did not have to do that. And he did that just so he could do something, you know, that, that, that made sense to him. You agree to it and you still use him in the, yeah. Katzenberg, you're a bum. Katzenberg listens to this podcast, right? I found out that Robin Williams was in an episode of Louie, Louis C.K.'s oh, uh, comedy. Okay. Did you know that? I don't recall that. I don't recall that either. I thought I saw that show. They are both, the episode begins with the men meeting at the grave of a comedy club manager who's recently died, who they privately despised, which is something both of them, I'm sure, could, could relate to in a huge way. And Louis says, when he died, I felt nothing. I didn't care, but I knew when I pictured him going in the ground and nobody's there, he's alone. It gave me nightmares. And Robin says, me too. And it's this very, very somber scene. And I'm like, how did I not remember that? How would I not so remember well, Maybe it's, I mean, I've basically blocked Louis C.K. It's hard for me to think of as someone who I enjoyed so much. I enjoyed all of his shows he did, enjoyed his stand-up, who I have no time for, no interest in blocking out of my memory. So maybe that's it. I don't know. Could be. I have somebody recently sent me a clip of his, and it was like really, really bittersweet. Really, really bittersweet. This is somebody, it's a friend of mine who I'm working on a script with, so I thought maybe something in the comedy was connected to our script and the themes that we're, we're exploring. It wasn't. It was just a clip of stand-up, 
And it was one of the you know more recent clips since he's come back, and he's still got it. It was so damn funny. It was so damn funny, and I'm so upset at this idiot. Yeah. Like, what a clown. Couldn't even offer a, a decent apology to bring back, you know, yeah. a good I mean, part maybe, of his Maybe we should do an episode of that. I really want to, because it's, it's devoting time to someone I don't really want to give the time to. And especially, yeah. now we're taking time away from one of the greatest of all Robin time. Robin Williams. Williams. So yeah, let's sure. talk a bit then about his legacy. And I'm just going to run through some of his movies and achievements because really after Mork and Mindy it was mainly movies and a few stand-up specials maybe three or four major stand-up specials over the years after that we talked about some of them already Night at the Met major breakthrough for me in movies was Good Morning Vietnam he was on Musk, Moscow on the Hudson and things like that but these are weren't really the huge successes but Good Morning Vietnam I mean it was a perfect combination of him right doing the dramatic acting and his comedy mm. rapid fire stream of consciousness stuff got an academy award nomination that was the first time i really saw that okay, this guy's a movie star right this guy's a movie star but also i i feel like i remember it being like well yeah of course he'd do well in that role right as you say he's he's also got a lot of actual robin williams in there just with those scenes on radio when he's yelling out good morning vietnam and then just going mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everybody's laughing and listening. And and the rumor, not the rumor, the story about Robin Williams is that he hated to do multiple takes the same way, which is acting, which is that's that's which is comedy, right? That's you just keep on going until you perfect the joke. But this guy, that's not how he operated. So every take, Mork and Mindy the same. Every time it's like, Kate, let's do take two, let's do it again. He was like, ah, because he's entertaining. In in Mork and Mindy was a live audience and in um Good Morning Vietnam, it would have been a crew of something like 20 plus people around him, probably more than that big budget movie. And so he was like constantly entertaining the people around him. So yeah, it was Robin doing a lot of Robin. And I don't think that movie to me suggested he had great range, exactly. but it did suggest me. Because if you look at his filmography, the next three movies are three of my favorite movies of all time. And it really showed him. So it was Dead Poet Society in 89. Awakenings in 1990, Fisher King in 91, and if you want to go another year, 92 was Aladdin. Like, that is what a streak of movies for a guy. Yeah, uh, Dead Poets Society, I mean, what else can you say about that movie? It's great. And But what I really liked a bit, and this is, you're going to see this when you hear about what I like best. I prefer his non-comedic movies. If you had to ask me, I prefer the more introspective ones where he's quiet, Dead Poets Society, you know, very little humor. Awakenings. I mean, he's playing, again, one of my idols, Oliver Sacks. So obviously, I love the idea of neurology, the encephalitis lethargica. We should do a rewatch of that movie and then talk a bit about that. That would be a great podcast topic. And then The Fisher King in 91. The Fisher King is such a great movie. I don't know. People would argue that – I would argue it could be one of Terry Gilliam's best movies. I mean, Brazil and Time Bandits being you know, two of probably the other ones. Time Bandits are so good. I love Fisher King so much. And I think it was really a more mainstream movie for Terry Gilliam. Jeff Bridges, amazing in it. Mercedes Rule won always. the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. We always forget oh. about that. So those ones really so the, so for me and the reason I I like those introspective ones more is because that's who I think Robin Williams really was and I think I connected with that a bit more. What about you with with the movies around this time? I will say you're missing the Birdcage, buddy, and we haven't gotten to Goodwill Hunting, which I assume you are getting yeah, to, yeah. but that's '97, yeah, yeah. so you're yeah. early. 
He won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in Good Will Hunting. It was so well-deserved. It's so well done. Oh, God, I just, I was emotionally punched in the face a number of times in that movie, and, and, and it, that was courtesy of him. But The Birdcage, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little trade-off. I would love to judge you, because I've heard you have not seen The Birdcage. That is true. And I heard that from La your Cage mouth. I have not seen that. La Cage au Fol, oh. and I will match you by saying I have not seen Awakenings. I thought I had. I was almost sure I had. Last time, I mixed it up with Patch Adams. And then, oh, because they're both, he plays a doctor in both of them, right? Or he's in the medical yeah, world. Yeah, he's, he's both a doctor in both of them, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, I thought, I was like, oh, yeah, no, Patch Adams, that one. I've seen Awakenings. And then I watched clips of him sort of, you know, talking to Dr. Sachs and doing the work, the work that he was actually known for. He did not shy away from putting in hours and hours and hours of work to make the final product as good as it was. And I realized I have not seen this movie. It's okay. It's the birdcage, you know, I haven't seen. That was such an interest. I mean, I read a lot about it. It's very interesting, right? Because Robin Williams is the more reserved in the couple, right? Him and Nathan Lane play a couple. Yeah. And, and, and Nathan so Lane good. is given the crazy, the outrageous kind of role, and he's more reserved. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such an interesting choice, right? Because it allows him to yeah. step back, be more reserved. And Nathan Lane, really, that was the start of his movie career. He was it was quite famous yeah. otherwise on stage and things like that. But that was kind of him, like, really taking off from a movie point of view. Yeah. All that to say, watch this movie. Stop being a weirdo about mm -hmm. it. And watch it with the kids. It's yeah. really quite, quite fantastic. Gene Hackman, Diane Wiest also in supporting roles. And obviously, what's our buddy's name? Who, uh, a voice of Apu. I say our buddy uh, facetiously there. Um, Hank Azaria. Oh my God. We're really blocking a lot of things out of our mind here. But Hank Azaria does a phenomenal job in this movie. See it? Watch it with the kids. Have a laugh. Now, I will say, I want to give... I want to give a little bit of a special mention to one hour photo. Not one of my favorites, but I was like rattled inside by how much Robin Williams could play a disgustingly creepy human mm -hmm. being. I think he was you know, great. I'm coming off yeah. of like Mrs. Doubtfire and Aladdin. I'm like, he's the best. He's such a good guy. He's always good and he's wonderful and he's lovely and he's on comic relief. And then one hour photo, blonde Robin, first of all, is creepy to begin with, but just the whole thing. I was like, ah, dude, it's like, uh, it's like finding out that like, you know, it's an, an uncle is like actually a creep or a weirdo or something. I don't know. I, that movie disturbed me a little bit. I'm so, and, and I agree. That's, that's and of the work he Insomnia was similar. He played this killer. Al Pacino's trying to figure out who's, who's the killer when he goes up it to is, Alaska yeah. and, and Al Pacino's keeps losing sleep, can't sleep. And ah, that was a great performance. And those two movies came out one hour photo and insomnia around the same time. So I, I think okay. that was, that was, that was a great move for him in terms of his acting career in terms of these menacing mm. roles. I think let's stay away from some of the misses, Jack, with toys we talked about before, Hook. I think it's, I, I don't want to be too negative, so I think we'll maybe stay away. Let's stay away from, he says, and then names and then three of them. Yeah. Okay. What about, <laughs> what about, you almost went to see a play yes, of his. That's right. So this was in 2011. My wife and I were going to go to New York City for a trip just before the birth of our second daughter. And mm -hmm. he was performing in his play, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, played by Rajiv Joseph, critically acclaimed play. And he plays this tiger who, you know, is able to talk and, and that's the kind of character. And he's the main person in the play. There's probably two or three other people in the play. And I was telling my wife, like, imagine we get to see Robin Williams 
on Broadway. This would be amazing. I said, maybe we'll try and get tickets. She's like, sounds good. And then I was looking things up. There was another play that had just come out, which was getting the best reviews in years for any musical. And that was the Book of Mormon. It was the hottest ticket Mm. in New York City. So much so that when we went to New York City, we told people, like at a store, that we had tickets. They were like, that's impossible to get. How'd you get them? I don't know. I somehow managed to get them. So I was like, what should we do? We could go go to the Book of Mormon or see Robin Williams in this play. And we chose the Book of Mormon. And now, of course, it's like a regret. Like, yeah. It was the original Daniel cast of Tiger Book of Mormon. at the Baghdad Zoo won a Pulitzer Prize for drama. No big deal. So, no big deal. Uh, and no I was really deal. worried. I don't think this happens when you have such a big actor as the main person but i'm worried if we saw like a matinee they'd have an understudy Mm. and imagine getting an understudy for robin williams i would have been like (laughs) so upset walking out walking out so i was so worried about that i was like okay let's let's go see anyway so i I missed that opportunity that's that was a bit sad on on my part no you can make it up by seeing there you go yes uh but i did want to get back to what i was asking you before which is what is the legacy of Robin Williams as a stand-up comic? We just we spent so long just now, the past five, ten minutes talking about his acting. Really, he's one of the best actors, or my favorite actors of the 20, 20th century. I don't know. What what's his comedy legacy? It's very interesting. It's 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 unlike, you know, I, I really you hear terms like incomparable and, you know, often imitated, never duplicated, that type of stuff. They don't really apply to a lot of people. I, I think He's really in this tiny, tiny group where he is just, he stands alone as a very unique performer. And there are others who are, you know, wild on stage and do a lot of improv, but something about his particular charm and his charisma and his, uh, you know, the speed of his mind, it's pretty, pretty unique. And in this documentary that we're talking about, Come Inside My Mind, you know, David Letterman is talking about like, Robin Williams was a guy he'd go on stage and... Most of us would be like, oh, no, oh, no, this is not good at all. Like, he's so good and he's using every single thing available to him physically and like creating things out of nothing and using props and, you know, props out of nothing. And we're here with our little jokes. That's what David Letterman said. And so, you know, everybody learns to follow somebody, but there's some people who are truly unfollowable. And I I don't envy anybody who had to go after Robin Williams on stage. And I imagine that happened less and less. It was just like, let's just put Robin last. You know, no one's going to stick around. No one's going to be interested in the next few comedians anyway, once they've seen Robin Williams because of his fame as well. I think the legacy of Robin Williams is also for those performers willing to do it. There's so much you can do on stage, just you and a microphone. There's so much you can do just with your voice and with your imagination and with your body, you can create an incredible thing. And, and, and so, you know, in that regard, the people who don't do that and just, just kill with just words alone, never even taking the microphone out of the stand, there's something to be said for them as well. But Robin Williams is an interesting, like if for my students, I would focus a little bit on Robin Williams just to show the potential of what you can do on stage as a performer. Many of them would know they're already drama students, but 
I think there's there's something incredibly inspirational about watching that. Because he's this combination, not just of stand-up, but of improv, as you're saying, and performance, and like theater performance, right? It's all together. Yeah. And you can imagine an alternate reality where Robin Williams became so big in stand-up that that was the way stand-up moved, right? He could have shifted you know, from just set up punchline jokes to this kind of thing. Like, imagine, and that's probably what Letterman was worried about. Like, what if yeah. we're going to be obsolete because this is, this yeah. is, it's not what happened this again because thing. of what you said, I guess, often imitated, never duplicated, or, you know, yeah. you, no you do cannot do what he does. It's just so difficult and so unique, yeah. but imagine it would have been a different, different landscape. But I will say this, and I think it, it bears mentioning that you know, the person who was producing his show, I don't know if it was Live at the Met or was some other show, they had done it, he said, 20 or 30 times. He was directing his show. He had seen it 20, 30 times, done a certain way. And then the night of the recording where they where they recorded and filmed the special, he said 25% of it I had never heard before. And that is in conjunction with another statement somebody had made, his writing partner, somebody who helped him from time to time, who said... Yeah, the improv was incredible on stage, but he was also very prepared. His mind worked very fast, but he was also incredibly prepared. He had this body of stuff ready in his mind that he worked on and he could use it. And it's very, this is a very common thing. This is what great stand-up is. It's making stuff look effortless, right? And so then that's what fools people in the trying stand-up comedy. They go, oh, that guy did it. Just got on and started talking. Yeah, you try that. You see how that works out for you often. You can't stand the test of time. And often the people doing it, it's because they've done it so often. So if you see somebody in a mesh shirt, you know, in, in the audience, you've already thought of 17 ways to describe that person in that shirt or something, you know, talk about them, around them, their choices, their mindset. You've done it so many times. You've imagined it. That's where the work is. So then in the moment, you can quickly reach into this this grab bag of stuff that you have. So he also put in a lot of work and it wasn't just meandering, coked up onto stage and, you know, what do you call that? Stream of consciousness, verbal diarrhea stuff. He worked very, very hard. The claims are that he was a workaholic as well. So there was a lot of work that went into what he did as well. So, Asif, for this next chunk, I think most people would be aware that Robin Williams took his own life, died of suicide. The original discussion was around Parkinson's, that he knew he had Parkinson's and that's why he took his own life. Then depression came into the discussion, right, with suicide. Depression is not far behind a lot of discussions and alcoholism was suggested. And as you read, you learn a few things more that, you know, he had been clean for eight years. There was nothing there. Depression didn't factor in. Although he had had bouts of depression, he wasn't depressed at the time. What was particularly interesting to me was reading things like, you know, in 2013, years before he died, he started having these physical ailments that didn't seem connected to one another. Now, I'm going to let you talk about that, but they were, you know, stomach cramps to trembling and insomnia and this kind of stuff. And... You know, we, we've sort of left it, a lot of people will say Parkinson's and it's left at that, but his his widow went out of her way to explain what really happened. So in the end, it's this thing that I've never heard of, 
that is what he was suffering from, and it's Louis bodies. And maybe you can explain what Louis bodies are and what the bodies. It has nothing to do with the human body. Is that yeah, right? I mean they the occur in the human body. Of, yeah, but yeah. yes, but they're bodies of something yeah, correct, correct, that yeah. are named after yeah. someone named Louis. L e w y. By the way, if anybody wanted to look that up, so can you talk a little bit about yeah, this? Yeah, they have nothing to do with Louis C.K. Thankfully, so let's start with these Louis bodies. So they were described by this guy named Frederick Louis. These are these clumps of material found in cells. Specifically, he found them in patients with idiopathic Parkinson's disease in an area of the brain called the substantia nigra, which is one of the dopamine-producing areas of the brain. And so we know dopamine's involved in Parkinson's disease, so that's when they were first kind of described, and that was in 1914. So let's just take a step back and talk about what Parkinson's disease is. And so Parkinson's disease is you have four major things. You have a tremor, which we've kind of seen, and you might have seen in patients who have a tremor. They have rigidity, so their body is stiff. They have what's called akinesia or bradykinesia, slowness of movement, so very slow to get up. They have this kind of shuffling gait when they're walking, kind of slow shuffling gait. And they have what's called postural instability. So they have a tendency to fall and to lose their balance. So that's what Parkinson's disease is. And again, Louis described these clumps of material that were found in these patients. And these are what's called, they're clumps of something called alpha-synuclein protein. And so these diseases we're going to talk about, which Parkinson's disease is one, is called a synucleinopathy. And these clumps of protein form, and then the neurons don't function well, and then they eventually die. And of course, if they occur in a dopamine-producing area like the substantia nigra, you get dopamine dysfunction. But they can occur in other areas as well in other parts of the brain. And you can get a problem with another neurotransmitter. So dopamine's one. And again, we think about dopamine as the gambling one. And, the, and I get a dopamine rush when I check my DMs on social media. But dopamine is involved in movement. And we've talked about that before on the podcast when we talked about dopa-responsive dystonia. We'll talk about who's sliding into your DMs and making you so excited another time, on a later yeah, episode. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's also acetylcholine, which is another neurotransmitter in the brain. And you have a cholinergic dysfunction in something like Alzheimer's disease. So now you can see these Lewy bodies being present can affect not just your movement, but other areas as well. Just so I'm clear, Lewy bodies start first and then they can lead to Parkinson's? They can lead to Alzheimer's? Is that so right? really you, good. But not always. No. Lewy bodies don't have to be present for Parkinson's to occur? Is that? No, they are. They're part they of are. the They're disease, but you can okay. only identify Lewy bodies after you're dead. That's the problem. No. So that's the issue. And they're not really associated with Alzheimer's. I mean, there's an, sometimes an overlap between people with Parkinson's disease or Lewy body diseases and Alzheimer's, but I think we'll leave that out for today. That's just a bit too specific to neurology. So let's leave that out. But the thing is, we don't know what triggers these Lewy bodies to start occurring and the buildup of this alpha-synuclein. And we don't actually think that they play a major role in the actual pathology. So it's not like, oh, these Lewy bodies are themselves causing damage to the neurons. They may just be an indirect indicator of the disease. Do you know what I mean? So it's not like if we said, let's get rid of all the Lewy bodies, now we've found a way to cure Parkinson's. That's probably not it. They just may be an indicator that you have the disease, but they not, might not be the cause. Do you know what I'm saying there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me, how does dementia 
connect to Parkinson's? Is it a form of it or is dementia the umbrella term? Perfect, perfect question. So this is, you could think of it like a spectrum, okay? On one hand, you have people with Parkinson's disease. We call that idiopathic Parkinson's disease. And they get all those motor symptoms I was talking about, the tremor, the stiffness, slowness of movement, etc. Sometimes people with Parkinson's disease, after several years of having the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, they can develop dementia, memory problems, thinking problems, and things like that. And that's thought to be, okay, they're now accumulating this alpha-synuclein protein, these Lewy bodies in other areas. But if we're thinking about this as a spectrum, there are patients who maybe present initially to their doctor with mainly the dementia-type symptoms and not as much with a motor. Or maybe they have a mild tremor, but they don't fulfill the criteria for Parkinson's disease. That's on the other end of the spectrum. So all these things are caused by Lewy bodies, but if you present to your doctor with just this dementia and maybe less motor stuff at the very beginning, that's what dementia with Lewy bodies is. And that's what they think Robin Williams had. Mm-hmm. You know, I had read that documentary, Robin's Wish, was his widow, what was her last name? She was a Schneider Williams. Yeah, that's right. Susan yep. Schneider Williams. She was saying it was like her mission to clear up what happened to him. And, and I'm just getting a full appreciation for why it would be called a mission because there's so much explanation required in what this is and how it differs from things we know and why it was not misdiagnosed, but misinterpreted by the general public. Yeah, she's been very active trying to raise awareness of these Lewy body diseases and Lewy body dementia. And mm -hmm. she even published an editorial, which we'll link to, in one of the neurology scientific journals. It's called Neurology, and it's a famous journal. And so she published an editorial in it. And really, when she made this documentary, Robin's Wish, she wanted to be only about this Louis body dementia. Didn't really want to talk too much about Robin Williams' life, but, you know, to get interest in it and to get it produced, she kind of had to talk a bit about his comedy and his life. Yeah, of course. But, I mean, it makes sense. All the questions about his life and his work have been answered a hundred times from him and mm -hmm. others around mm -hmm. him. This is a unique right. thing that'll have a benefit to others, one assumes as well, down the road. How common are Louis bodies? How common is dementia with Louis bodies? It's a bit hard to know because lots of people are diagnosed only after they die, like with autopsy. So this Lewy body dementia, for example, we can say you have a probable or possible diagnosis, but you only know for sure after they die. So it is hard to know. Autopsy studies suggest that Lewy body dementia accounts for about 10 to 20% of all dementias. And one study in France looking at this dementia with Lewy bodies says that the incidence is, is about 112 cases per 100,000 persons. And with those with a suspected diagnosis, that is. So relatively common. I do remember reading about, you know, he was giving hints to people about how he was feeling that the director of Night at the Museum, I think for that movie, you know, Robin was, was sort of shaking and getting these tremors in his hand. So he was keeping his hand in his pocket more often. He told Billy Crystal, I've been uh, feeling crispy, which God knows what that means, right? But obviously he's trying to suggest that he's just not feeling right. And he had told somebody else as well in the, in the acting world, like, I'm just not myself. And the reason I say all those things is, is it hard to describe what's happening? It's just such a, a variety of different things and then things appear and then they go away. So you don't know 
when you figure out one thing, a new thing pops up and the old thing exactly. disappears. Exactly. Or, or they're still there. And you think, is it, do I just have a bunch of different things? And, and essentially, if you watch some of these documentaries, like Robin Williams said, basically his mind was betraying him. Like he couldn't trust his own thoughts anymore. And that was yes. very disturbing to him. So if you read this editorial by Susan Schneider Williams, she really describes it well. So I'll just tell you a couple of the symptoms that she said Robin was suffering from. Constipation urinary difficulty, heartburn, sleeplessness and insomnia, and a poor sense of smell. And this was causing a lot of stress in him. He had this tremor, mainly in his left hand, and tremor in Parkinson's disease or these related Lewy body disorders is often one side. Okay, that's a bit of a hint. And he would have trouble remembering his lines. He was doing Night at the Museum Part 3, which was directed by Sean Levy, as you said. Ben Stiller's in that. He couldn't remember his lines. And Sean Levy, you know, he said everybody in the movie, nobody said a word about these difficulties he had ever until his passing. And then now with trying to raise awareness, he feels more comfortable talking about it. But everybody kept quiet out of respect for him. But his wife said, doesn't make sense. He couldn't remember one line for one scene. And three years prior, remember in 2011, I said I was going to go see him on Broadway. He did five months of that play and sometimes did two shows a day. I said matinee and an evening performance with hundreds of lines. Never had an issue. And now three years later, he can't remember one line in his movie. And she said it didn't make sense. Then his tremor got worse and he had a slow and shuffling gait. So now you can see that maybe he's being diagnosed with what we call Parkinsonian symptoms, right? How do you explain the other stuff? He, again, got worse, thrashing around at nighttime, would be stuck in a frozen stance and couldn't move and would be frustrated by that. And then having difficulties with his visual spatial abilities, he couldn't judge depth. And then she says his anxiety just spiraled and became out of control and, and he became paranoid. And again, like she said, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's, but how do you explain everything else? Didn't explain the paranoia. And he had had these delusional loopings. And sometimes he'd be totally fine and 100% on board. And then hours even later, he'd be just completely out of it. She said nothing explained. And people thought, okay, he's Parkinson's. And then he, he happens to have also maybe a bit of depression and maybe a bit of constipation. And she said they were called satellite issues, but they weren't really the actual problem that was going on. So... He was misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. He was told he had Parkinson's. That's what he thought he had. What are the medical criteria for Lewy body? I mean, you can't determine that somebody has it until they've passed, I guess, right? But doesn't this add to the sort of the literature that somebody says, okay, you, it looks like you have Parkinson's, but there's this variety of other things that we found in people who have Lewy body dementia. So, so I wouldn't say he was misdiagnosed per se, but he had an incomplete diagnosis because people were focusing diagnosis. only on the, what we call Parkinsonian symptoms and not focusing on the other things. Because if you focus on the other things, you can say, actually, no, he has dementia with Lewy bodies, or he probably has that. So that's one thing to remember. The second thing is, as you said, it's only a definitive diagnosis after death, but you can say a possible or probable diagnosis when someone's alive based on the following criteria. So these are the things that you need to have, okay? These are the main criteria. One is you have fluctuations, okay? So the first thing, these fluctuations are these alterations in your thinking, your attention, and it comes and goes. So that's why sometimes you're totally fine, Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you can remember the words in a script. Sometimes you can't. And it's very variable. And sometimes you're just staring and, and out of it. And if you watch these documentaries, a lot of his 
neighbors and friends were like, yeah, he would just sit and stare for like 15 minutes. And so that fluctuating course is one of the criteria. Second criteria is hallucinations. So you get these complex visual hallucinations. They're typically very well-formed hallucinations of people, children, animals. You can have what's called a passage hallucination, where just in the periphery of your vision, you think there's someone walking by there, an animal walking by, but you turn and there's nobody there. Or a sense of presence, like you feel that somebody's in the room, but they're not. So these hallucinations are also another major criteria. So do we know that he had hallucinations? Yeah, his wife was never told about it and he never complained about it to her. And so she thought it was weird because in hindsight, he had every criteria for Louis Bai disease except for hallucinations. But she had his file reviewed by several prominent neurologists who are experts in Louis Bai dementia. And they said, you know, they think he probably did, but they were in his case, were probably so disturbing he didn't want to talk about them, and that may have been contributing to a lot of his distress. So that's that was the interpretation. I read that he was on his way to an appointment, pretty thorough appointment of some kind. Not on his way, but had that scheduled for a week or so after his suicide. He was supposed to get this checked out. I think there was some thought. There's an article in The Guardian talking about how he may have been concerned that once he gets in the hospital, he'll never be able to get out because he knew it was bad. He didn't know what it was exactly, perhaps, but he definitely knew it was bad. And he was like, this might be the end for me. Just finishing off with the criteria, another one is Parkinsonism, which we've already talked about. That is seen about 85% of patients. And then the last one is something called REM sleep behavior disorder, which is a very interesting disorder, occurs in Lewy body diseases, all the different ones we talked about, including Lewy body dementia. So when we sleep, REM or REM sleep is when we're dreaming, right? So when you're dreaming, there's a certain pattern that we see on the sleep tracings if we're doing the testing in a sleep lab and we know you're in REM sleep. But your body does something very specific when you're in REM sleep is it sends a signal to your rest of your body to stop moving. So you're actually paralyzed when you're having REM sleep. You couldn't move. And some people may have had this. They wake up and they actually are paralyzed for like a very short amount of time because you may have woken up in the middle of REM sleep. Not very common, but sometimes that can happen. What happens in these Lewy body diseases is you lose that ability to inhibit your body when you're in REM sleep. In other words, your body can act out your dreams. So these people, they're not sleepwalking, but they will act out their dreams. And so if you look at some of these videos that you can find online, sometimes People are getting up and they're they're having a dream they're being attacked by somebody. So they're attacking either their bed partner or the pillow beside them because they think they're being attacked because their body can't make you paralyzed during it. So it's, it's quite a frightening thing and can cause a lot of sleep disturbance, obviously, not just for you, but for your sleeping partner as well. And then there's some other features that you can have. You can have repeated falls, loss of consciousness, constipation, which he had, urinary cons, which he had, loss of smell, which he had, anxiety, depression, and even apathy, like not caring anymore. So this is why when his wife's like, no, he checked off every box for having all these things, except maybe not the hallucinations that he was telling everybody about. We always talk about treatment for whatever condition we bring up, but it doesn't feel like there's treatment for this, or am I wrong about that? If you're having this problem with the acetylcholine, you can use medications that act on that to give you extra acetylcholine, essentially, and they can be tried first because those medicines are used in, in Alzheimer's disease, which, like we said, is, is a different cause, but it may help in this. You can be very 
sensitive to what are called neuroleptics, which are antipsychotic medications. So if you're having some psychosis or, or behavioral disturbance, you don't want to use those medicines because you can be very sensitive to those and have a lot of reactions to it. And of course, you can try and treat the Parkinsonian symptoms with the medicines like levodopa that we use for Parkinson's disease. But studies show they may not be as effective, unfortunately. My understanding of his suicide was he knew the next period of his life was going to be awful. Didn't feel like these were things that were going to get any better. He'd been experiencing various things since 2013. But should we be looking at the suicide connected to the depression and connected to this dementia? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a bit of a speculation on your part. I'm not sure. I know a lot of people have said that. Like maybe he just figured yeah. out what was going on. Because if you look at the survival in Louis by dementia, which he was not diagnosed with before he died. Nobody even suggests a probable diagnosis. Only after the fact, again, that's why his widow is trying to raise awareness. But one study from 2019 found the average survival time after diagnosis was 4.1 years. So it's a pretty grim prognosis. Is that what happened? I think that's a bit of speculation. I'm not even sure his close family and friends knows for sure why he took his own life. Depression, we know, can be associated with Louis by dementia, but is an increased risk of suicide necessarily associated? That's not quite clear in the literature. So I think some of the experts who've given their opinion on Robbie Williams' case don't want to necessarily link those two things because it's too hard to know, right? Was it the disease itself? Was it the depression associated with his disease? Or was it him realizing that my mind is betraying me and, and I, I need to end it? I don't know. So again, all this is, like we said, it's grim. It's saddening to hear about Robin Williams, especially in his last days and all these symptoms he was having. But as I mentioned, his widow is very, very engaged in helping raise awareness for everyone at large, and especially in the neurology community, to help guide people. Because she wonders, even if Robin even just had a name for this disease, maybe that would have helped him manage things. Even though there's no cure, let's say, there were ways to treat it, at least to help with some of the symptomatology. So I think it's really important, and I'm glad we're doing this episode to help raise awareness. So that's our show for today. Let us know what you guys think. What are your favorite Robin Williams memories, your, his favorite performances that you have? Let us know. Dr. V Comedian on Twitter, Facebook, Gmail. We're everywhere, as I always yeah. say. I think this, like his life, I think this episode also dipped into some pretty sad and heavy themes. But you can't deny that he was a guy who lived life to his fullest and put his entire heart and soul into all the work he did. So I, I think it's still a celebration of Robin Williams' life, this episode. And if you ask people, you know, and you one of his movies is probably one of your favorite movies of all time, right? Like that is just the way it goes. Like he's been in so many things that that really affected us. So, uh, you know, my wife was like, you guys got to talk about Goodwill Hunting. You have to talk about this. You have to, you have to talk about Patch Adams, you know? And so anyway, let us know what you guys thought of it. We have some other exciting episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks that you will hear about shortly. But remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye.